Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. And I also have a Patreon, and on that people pay me money, you know, for food or cheese or saltines or whatever. But you know what? I don't want your filthy nation state fiat. I would, however, take your five-star reviews, though. Um, so if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes or Google Play or whatever. Uh, I really would appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Okay, so in today's episode, I chat with Jeremy Hymans, who wrote this great book called New Power, and we chat about a variety of things. We chat about um, New Power, which is this crowd-based power that's starting to exist within networks' crowds. Um, We also chat about how that New Power kind of manifests itself into old power institutions, aka, if you think about, like, Black Lives Matter, how does that actually end up affecting the world? Um, We chat about also a little bit about crypto and, like, um, Jeremy's worries about crypto and thinking about who is getting power and, and, you know, if the internet was a transition of power from non-nerds to nerds, um, how is crypto transferring power and then also a secondary question here around you know supporting public goods and you know should how does the government support public goods how can something like crypto support public goods um it's nice to get jeremy's kind of fresh perspective here a very crowd-based perspective um towards crypto uh and then we also chat about you know something that i've been asking more of my um interviewees is like hey um making them really define what is good um you know so for jeremy i think he's definitely more on the hey i think something like black lives matter you know me too is good and something like make america great again or the nra is less good um and so we kind of dive into that and say what why are some things good and some things not good and for him it's all about uh, or not all but primarily about power and kind of thinking about historically marginalized groups um so that's fun we also chat about Bodie mcboatface which is a great example of new power gone wrong um and kind of one big thing that I want to hit on here um, before letting you listen to the interview is if we, and we chat about this a bit in the show Jeremy and I do, and it's this idea that if we have um, we have this internet of information and we have our networked info, we have this permissionless you know info information transfer at zero marginal cost, and that's pretty crazy. It allows for things like aggregators like Google and Facebook and platforms like Uber and Airbnb, um, and it allows for these you know these hashtag based new power memes, these crowd based memes like Me Too and Black Lives Matter and Make America Great Again, and also allows for some of these new kinds of networked protests like the Arab Spring, um, and. If that internet of information allows for this kind of new power, well, then we should start to think, well, what will the blockchain and the internet of value enable? Because that'll be a networked value transfer, not just info transfer. It'll be the permissionless, in theory, permissionless um, value transfer at zero marginal cost. And so as that happens... um, you know, we can think, well, these things like this traditional new power, whether it's the aggregators of the platforms or the hashtag-based memes and the kind of kind of fragile networked protest, how will those things 
you know, change once this value layer is automatically added. You know, imagine that, you know, how does the new power essentially get instantiated if we're in a world where Black Lives Matter, instead of needing to translate that meme into some kind of weird old power institution like a nonprofit, if it instead can more easily and more permissionlessly connect that powerful info, that powerful meme, to some kind of powerful value um, institution base, um, capital base that some things like blockchain might enable through tokenization or what have you. Um, so that's the idea here. And you can, when you start to think from this perspective, you can start to think, hey, Bitcoin and Ethereum are really, they're a form of networked protest. And instead of being a networked protest that is just um, information-based instead, and, and fragile, instead it's, you know, value-based and has capital behind it and is anti-fragile. So so that's the idea here. And so as you listen to today's episode, sort of think about how these kind of blockchain-based institutions um, kind of will manifest themselves in a new way uh, that might be similar or different from new power. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Jeremy. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems-thinking approach to doing good in the world, and we have a couple different series to focus on different system scopes. And today, we're focusing on Series A macro systems, aka where are we as humanity headed? And to explore that question, I'm very excited to introduce Jeremy Hymans to the show. Uh, Jeremy is the CEO of Purpose and the author of a new book, New Power. Um, Jeremy, thanks for being on the show, and welcome. Great to be here, Reese. Yeah, excited to chat. Um, so so Jeremy, first at a high level, let's just um, give us an overview. What is New Power? Well, New Power is the way we see it is it's kind of this critical skill you need in the 21st century, and it's both a method and a mindset, and that is this ability to harness the energy of these connected crowds that are all around us. So to operate in a world of crowds, um, we think requires a pretty different set of skills and a pretty different orientation to the world. And the book is really about how to do that. It's about the implications of that. And it's about a world in which, um, you know, models of power that are based on uh, these new forms of participation and peer coordination are battling and balancing with models of power that remain traditional, that they're based on what one knows, what one owns, what one has that no one else does. And those things are increasingly um, in a contest, I think, for the way humanity evolves um, and for the future. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. And that's why uh, that's a great overview. And that's why I've chatted about it on my show before. Um, Two quick notes there. One is, as you talk about this this networked, I think about it as like a networked human organism. There's Mm -hmm. 4 billion smartphones. By 2020, there are going to be 4 billion like interconnected smartphones. Like, that's crazy. So why wouldn't you leverage that? Um, And then the other thing you talk about there is like, when you think about it, it's this participatory aspect. And that's why I think of this as like using the prefix co all the time. Co-creating, co-evolve, co-whatever. That kind of gets this participatory vibe. So for for you, when I think about new power, I really connect it to um, this book Machine Platform Crowd. Uh-huh. And this final piece, crowd, crowd versus core, yeah. and how we're transitioning some way from cores to these crowds that you're talking about. Yeah. Is new power, how much is new power about the crowd? And, mm. and is new power also about anything that's not kind of crowd-based? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think you know, your, your comment about participation is one that we should dwell on, right? Yeah. <laughs> so our argument here is not... Um, there are 4 billion smartphones, therefore the world has changed. It's actually about the way that ubiquitous connectivity affects 
um, both the way people behave and what they expect and the models of economic, social, political organisation that become possible mm-hmm. or that become more viable um, relative to other models, right? So, so that's really important to know. And so, you know, we, we can think about um, an analogy we often use, a very simple analogy to help people understand the difference between old and new power is the difference between Tetris and Minecraft. Mm-hmm. So Tetris is a block-based game where things are falling on top of your head. You've got to sort things out into neat rows, but you really don't have very much agency. But in a world in which, you know, young kids today are growing up um, with Minecraft, they have this radically different expectation of their ability to shape their world. And to your point, they're shaping that world often in a coordinated and collaborative way in order to get things done. And so their experience of the world is not one in which you're simply subjected to a bunch of rules that are imposed on you from the outside, but one in which you, you know, can make the rules. So that's important. It's a big shift. It should not be confused with those people necessarily being more powerful Mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, and we talk about this a lot in the book, that, you know, a more participatory world is not one in which... Uh, power necessarily flows more evenly because the difference is you can have agency but your ability to shape outcomes um, in real ways can still be constrained and we'll talk about more of that yeah that's interesting that reminds me of uh, this when people imagine the new early age internet it's like oh my god it's going to disintermediate all the things and like power will flow to the, the, the edges and then we saw that actually well when you have zero marginal cost of distribution that creates these massive aggregators like Google and Facebook. And so as you're saying this, it's not like just because people can participate doesn't right. mean they can actually exercise their power. In the right. Way. Well, it means, I mean, if you think about Facebook as a good example. So yes, all of us now have the ability to connect with people seamlessly in ways that were impossible, uh, you know, a decade and a half yeah. ago. That's true. Facebook facilitates that. On the other hand, if you think about the economic value that's being created, if you think about the way that platform then shares shapes, outcomes, uh, behavior, mm-hmm. feelings, we actually have very little yeah. agency over those things. So that's the yeah. paradox. Yes, we do have mm-hmm. an ability to participate. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are left with more power. Yeah. Um, and that's you know a central challenge with these models. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's part of why the blockchain and crypto stuff is so compelling, mm-hmm. because Theoretically, yeah. it promises um, to address that because of the disintermediation of some of those platform-like players. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, and let's actually dive down that for just a half second, just to explore our crypto fancy for a bit, and just just to tell our listeners, it's not like Jeremy is a crypto expert in any means. He's clearly interested because who wouldn't be? <laughs> but um, so, Jeremy, do you think when I think about some of these? Um, so the, these kind of new power kinds of things that where people can come together around memes, like people come together around Me Too or you know Black Lives Matter or MAGA or whatever. Um, but then there's not really they're kind of information based, and there's not really kind of a capital layer like a like a, mm-hmm. a, a financial capital layer around them. Mm-hmm. When I think about blockchain and crypto and how it's creating this internet of value, kind mm-hmm. of thing, and the, mm-hmm. the money itself can flow, I feel like it might be able to kind of elevate something like what was purely just a meme or like a, yeah, a quick and new power based meme can actually elevate to the, the level of institution because it has kind of capital flowing behind mm. it from blockchain based mm-hmm. you know tokens or whatever mm-hmm. does that seem <laughs> what are your thoughts on that well, yeah i mean so so well, let's think about what the practical applications of that yeah. are right so what i'm hearing which is right is that you know out of a cultural moment like me to you know 
if if there are things for which capital is useful, if there are new forms of economic value that can be created that reinforce the goals of a movement like that, yep. you know, is it rewarding companies that, uh, you know, rewarding companies that um, that that are supportive of policies in this area and punishing those who are not, or if it's supporting women-owned businesses or any number yep. of things, speculatively, right? Yep. Then clearly, what blockchain and crypto does is it makes that much easier, quicker, and more scalable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now that isn't to say that it's impossible now. So, right, so the phenomenon of crowdfunding is a phenomenon that um, you know has already made a significant impact without the need for the further kind of step of yeah. crypto or the further disintermediation that the blockchain represents. Yeah. And so already I think we have a clue to that future, yeah. which is the fact that there are these crowdfunding platforms that are allowing people to move money in a crowd-driven way yeah. rather than in a way that relies on the concentration of you know a few small donors or investors. Yeah. So yes, the answer is absolutely yes, but I think the use cases are the things that we need to kind of get clearer on. Yeah. And what does the blockchain unlock that is different to you know more conventional forms of crowd-backed funding, um, funding. Have you. yeah and, and i think you're right to say it's a yes and situation where it's already being done today yeah and that's actually a question i wanted to post to you which was something that i am interested by is like so for something like me too or or black lives matter or whatever these something like maga like make america great again mm-hmm. was kind of created from uh it was created essentially by trump or by trump's crew or whatever and it was already connected to yeah. to the institution of power in that way something like me too or black lives matter those feel like they were kind of hashtags first yes. and then did they did they transition how did those get kind of instantiated in the world and mm-hmm. not just purely like this is more of a meme, or but how did yeah. it get like how did it turn into like nonprofits or like what happened? There? Yeah, well, if you think about the the Me Too trajectory, I think it's a really interesting one. So, firstly, it's important to note that there there was um, a woman, Tarana Burke, who was using this hashtag for campaigning yeah. that was more focused specifically on women of color for a decade. Yeah. But it, it it took a tweet from Alyssa Milano, uh, of all people, to kind of cause this you know the beginning of this huge wave. Now that was interestingly, if you study the history of this, in the in the year before, um, after the Access Hollywood tape um, was released about Trump, a little mini Me Too sprung up about mm. sexual um, harassment assault called Not Okay hashtag Not Okay. But I think one of the things that's interesting about the difference between those two is that Me Too was actually much more clearly actionable. Yeah. So Me Too kind of invited yeah. people to actually share a story yeah. rather than just condemn. Yeah. And so the actionable mm. nature of it and ultimately the extensibility of it mm-hmm. is part of why it caught fire. Yeah. Now, what happens with these ideas is these are ideas and these ideas then of course take many different shapes and none of these things are being kind of coordinated by, you know, by one person at the top, right? Yeah. But, you know, that um, huge increase in energy and salience mm-hmm. spawned things like the Time's Up organization. Mm-hmm. But the Time's Up organization does not seek to speak for the entire Me Too movement. And many things have been spawned Mm -hmm. in many geographies and many industries that all look different. So the strength of these kinds of memes that become more than memes is that they, um, they don't 
run into the same problem necessarily of being subject to the whims of individual leaders the vicissitudes of that means that you know if those leaders fight with each other or those leaders are caught you know doing bad things that the whole movement can collapse the movements like this are more are more in one way more resilient because of how decentralized they are in another way they can be very hard to coalesce by definition and so that means that some of them just fizzle out very quickly Mm -hmm. and so part of the way we think about this is what is the relay needed between old power and new power to take the energy of these massive new power currents like Me Too and Black Lives Matter and make sure that they get captured um, uh, and moved into into the kind of old power world and to the changes that need to happen and that's always the dance. I think people tend to think of these two things as mutually exclusive mm-hmm. so you know the way people have these debates they're in one camp or the other they're like oh I think Me Too is fantastic or or Black Lives Matter or oh, this will achieve nothing yes. because it's not an organisation where's the leader yeah, yeah, and yeah. neither views are right yeah. you know you actually need both approaches yeah. um, to you know to push the whole change process through. forward yeah that makes sense that reminds me of uh, there's a lot there so I think I think the first thing that comes to my mind on, on that last point is uh, Zeynep Tufeki wrote this great book called Twitter yeah. and Tear Gas and she talks in that about these nonviolent protests and how they have there's the and especially how Facebook changed um, in, enabled in some ways the Arab Spring yeah. um, and how there's the kind of the what you're talking about here is on one side there's the signaling piece which is hey we have this this big momentum here it's easier to get 500,000 people together than it was before yeah. um, so let's do that and then there's the capabilities piece and the underlying like you know capacities piece which is how do you take that and then turn it into like long term change yes um, and so I guess just to explore that for a bit how should people do that <laughs> well you know I mean I think the, the thing we, we say in the book is unfortunately some of the best exemplars of this are actually um, bad actors <laughs> what I would classify as yeah, bad yeah, actors yeah, yeah. other people would love you know <laughs> so you know the NRA does this pretty well right the NRA has a very strong old power repertoire mm-hmm. so it knows how to um, inspire fear it knows how to exercise kind of coercive power in the corridors of of power of congress of uh, across the country it does that very well it uses its brand its institutional might its resources it also is surprisingly good at letting go of control and cultivating a kind of sprawling grassroots beyond its own formal membership <laughs> that provides the energy and intensity that they can then throw fuel on as they see uh, it crop up. So it's a very effective uh, combination. They're good at both, yeah. They're very good at both. So, you know, I think some of the best actors, you know, have both of these skills and know when to use which, right, in order to um, produce the right outcomes. And so, I, you know, I think in a way the Trump story is also a bit of a story of that. Definitely. So, yeah. you know, yes, he originates the, the slogan, uh, Make America Great Again, um, but he also really does an effective job of sending a signal to his digital crowd, to his yep. sprawling, decentralized yep. social media army, yep. that they should do their worst, that they should be creative, mm-hmm. that he's not going to impose any control yeah. over their message yep. or, or any of those things, but rather, to the contrary, mm-hmm. he's going to encourage them. Yep. So it's a very different posture mm-hmm. to... Um, 
you know, okay, here's my slogan, everybody repeat it. Yeah, yeah. And if anybody div- diverts from that, I'm going to distance myself, right? Mm-hmm. So that strategy is a new power strategy yeah. because he's cultivating the agency of his crowd. And that was very important yeah. in the, you know, all the social media sentiment analysis of 2016 shows that Trump did have higher intensity of support yep. and favorability on social media even when he had lower favorability in public opinion polls yeah and yeah. that mattered yeah exactly and it, it was powerful and that's that's you hit on that point earlier where it's like hey if something is think about me too versus uh what was the other one that was not me too that was condemning uh, uh never, not okay not okay yeah, yeah where it's like hey when you're creating one of these new power things you have to think how can we make it actionable how can we make exactly. it remixable all exactly kind of and that's that was the sort of one of the one of the big themes of the work yeah that's exactly that. yeah, yeah. Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked, computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. Keepy is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your KeepKey is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line, you'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit KeepKey.com to order yours today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. Is there, so thinking about, I mean, and one thing that is kind of spicy with this stuff is that you have power and power can be used for good and bad things. And you just talked about, um, you know, there are, in, in, in my mind, you know, and I think in many of my listeners' lines, but not some of them, you know, something like Me Too and Black Lives Matter yeah. feels good. You know, yeah. it's, it's changing, you know, historical racism and, yeah. and sexism saying, let's empower these people. While something like, you know, maybe, you know, Trump or the NRA might feel kind of bad for you. And so I think a question that's an interesting question, this almost isn't even related to new power as a thing, but just for you personally, sure. what, you know, what to you says, hey, this is a thing, I, I think that this is going to be a good thing for the world. This is something that I want new power to put its weight behind. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think um, a couple of ways to think about this. One, is it actually making more people more powerful? Mm-hmm. And is it doing so in a way that produces better social outcomes mm-hmm. and doesn't harm Yeah other groups of people, particularly people who've been historically marginalized. So, you know, that's the difference between white nationalism and Black Lives Matter. You know, white nationalism is based on an ideology of hatred of other ethnic groups, Mm -hmm. and it's about helping a group that historically has been more powerful, right, to state the obvious. So that's why social movements (laughs) do that, you know, um, you know, like Black Lives Matter are so important. So I think that the the litmus test is partly about the distribution of power, it's partly about the social outcomes, and your view of social outcomes, of course, is going to be informed Mm -hmm. by what you think a better society looks like, (laughs) you know. And we're unashamed in the book about saying... This is our worldview. It's a it's a progressive worldview. Mm-hmm. We want a more open world. We want a more compassionate world. Yeah. You know, etc. Within that frame, we make the argument that 
you know, we need to help climate scientists get better at prosecuting their argument yeah. because they're tackling climate deniers who want to deny reason. Yeah. We make the argument that we want to help those who are trying to create tolerance and support for refugees and immigrants yeah. um, at a time when nativists are winning. So, you know, that's our bias, but you can use the ideas in the book uh, for better or worse, whatever your ideology, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and they will be useful. Yep, yep, that makes sense. I feel like, uh, and, and as you say there, I do think that this this question of, and going back to where, who has power in the world, and, and who also historically has had power, is a great way to answer what can be good. You know, you yeah. say, hey, look, if if we were in a different reality, maybe it's maybe it's the year three thousand. And in fact, it's the case that like, you know, women and minorities or, you know, not white people have had too much power for the last however many years. Right. You can imagine where we're like, hey, we should have something like, you know, white nationalist, white lives matter, you know, like <laughs> something like that could exist then. But <laughs> in, in the deepest theoretical sense. Exactly. exactly, in, a way that, exactly. Yeah, in a way that belies all of human history. Yes, exactly. But yes, exactly. We we um I guess this is this is this is my way to say that when we it's not yeah like like we can agree with people of that variety given a certain status quo but the current status quo is not that you know the current status quo is one in which the the power has clearly been people like you and me you know rich right. white males right. for a long time right. you know so like right. let's not have that exactly um, okay so kind of taking it a step back then from that that kind of moral piece and thinking more about um, a word that I just used that academics use called new institutional economics um, which is essentially how institutions co-evolve through time so mm-hmm. you can imagine you know when the nation state really became a thing around like industrial revolution time and kind of the church and religion kind of lost more power how did those things happen and now as we're starting to see some of these new power dynamics occur um how do you see and you talked about this a bit but how do you see stuff like you know new power based memes or kind of new power based crowd you know leveraging how are those going to kind of co-evolve with and compete with things like nation states or companies and firms and things like yeah. that? yeah well look i mean so i think already what we've seen is the you know the rise of course of the platform which is a way of you know platforms like facebook and twitter and even airbnb are ways of coalescing and structuring that that new power that we describe so the people who are effective at doing that are winning in many in many ways right um including the people who are frankly co-opting that participatory energy Mm. so you know a big theme of our age if you think about institutions changing is that you know we live in a world in which there's deep skepticism of institutions so when you ask people in surveys do they trust you know big business or do they trust um government um they you know the big social institutions of our of our world they say Absolutely not, right? And yet, we've seen this massive shift in power toward platforms that in many ways are institutions, are acting like institutions, are capturing, are extractive, and yet, you know people you know still have a reasonably different attitude to those they don't really yet see them as institutions i think we're beginning to see how with facebook and others people are beginning to develop a kind of political consciousness about these actors so that they're starting to see how they're almost as powerful as nation states and we need to start treating them that way you know um demanding things of them you know trying to take our power back Mm -hmm. in 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 context so i think that's a really interesting evolution uh i think it'll be really interesting to see if a further evolution of that is that these all-powerful platforms get further 
usurped by the development of you know blockchain based um, means yep. if that happens there are still going to be very powerful institutions yep. that mediate that yes and we know that right um, the question is will the role and power of that institution be different from the perspective of the things that matter yep. which is who gets the value you know what aggregate social outcomes you know yep. occur who benefits yep. who has a voice in the decisions about how they're governed yep. etc yep. And so that, I think, is the next frontier of that conversation. Totally. And uh, likely it'll still be a while out. Um, yeah. But, uh, and my concern, yeah. to be clear, yeah. is if you look at... I think it matters who the people are who are running these things. Exactly. And one of the things that you know we saw is that the transfer of power from some of the traditional companies to the big new tech companies didn't involve any change in that you know highly educated, rich white guys yeah. from you know the US and a couple of other countries dynamic. Yeah. at all yeah. like they have different fashion sense yeah. they were wearing like hoodies this time <laughs> but otherwise they were the same yes. right mm-hmm. and the same class of people yeah. bestowed uh, you know but, but reproduced that yeah. that relationship and that continues right if you look at the power of VCs yeah. um, if anything the only redistribution of power that happened was from non-nerds to nerds <laughs> yeah. so so you know that uh, is also I think being replicated you know and you would know this better than I would in the the early dynamics of the yes. crypto and blockchain yes. worlds yes. where clearly yeah. it's the same you know it's the same characters yeah. right yeah. maybe yeah. even nerdier yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and well that's funny because and I do agree and there's kind of a there are kind of two two ways to think about this there's the there's like the identity piece and there's like who are the people and are they okay they're rich white western dudes you know like that's kind of one side of things sure. um, and we would like that to be much more diverse from an identity perspective. Yeah. I think almost, I'm not sure if you could say more important, but definitely also super important is whether or not the people who are there, who are kind of starting things, who have the power, do they, what are their values and what are their value sets? And I think that hopefully within the crypto world, um, maybe a quick example here is this thing called Give Crypto, which is a bunch of kind of top crypto folks who are all just uh, actively self-taxed themselves, aka gave a bunch of money to charity Mm -hmm. um, to do, to give it to this this thing called Give Directly or Give Directly like thing. Um, And so, and so hopefully that the hope, and we'll see if that's actually occurs, but that the blockchain crypto world has decentralization of power itself as a value yeah. and that that value as the people gain power that some of them may have similar identities but their goal is to decentralize power and that they'll have kind of actively non-accumulation self-taxing mindsets to give power back to the system that's the hope. yeah well and I think a couple of a couple of things to look out for yeah, okay. like one is um, where how the capital flows to finance these new players yeah. right because I think one of the th- reasons we keep getting stuck in this endless loop yeah. is that you know platforms like Facebook and Twitter are funded by the same traditional sources of capital that demand traditional returns and a a set of behaviors that are not self-taxing redistributive behaviors right so that's point one and then point two i think is to think about is yes i think you know it would be great if the if the values of this group um were public spirited Mm -hmm. but there is also this question and tension between moments where decentralization can solve problems and moments where we need old power, we need institutions, we need kind of public... We don't want to just disaggregate preferences. We actually need, you know, preferences to be uh, determined 
at a public level mm-hmm. with a common good mindset, mm-hmm. which cannot purely be solved through a bunch of disaggregated yeah. activities and transactions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where my concern yeah. is that the ideology of some of those guys, you know, is they just don't have a precedent for that yeah. because that's not how they've advanced in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big clash that we see again and again. And we explore that clash in values a lot in the book. Yeah. And I think our position is we kind of like, I feel like we have one eye to the 21st century and one eye to the 20th yeah. can understand like the the merits in a way of both views of the world yeah. and are really interested in models that kind of get the best out of both both views. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's there's a funny I mean, yeah, the, the blockchain crypto world is very libertarian by nature. That's kind of right. Yeah. I mean that's I mean yeah. and, uh, and the question is and and I think it some of them might think, and I think this to some extent, that you can achieve things that have traditionally been done by kind of nation-state government stuff, like public good kind yeah. of things, that you might be able to achieve some of those same outcomes just through these weird new right. I think means, that's true you know? of some things. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. But decision-making, mm-hmm. you know, again, if, 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 if all this becomes is the aggregation of a set of... Um, a set of atomized activities, mm-hmm. then it's only the people who are participating in that yeah. that are really going to benefit. Yeah. So there's this additional layer, you know, that governments are used for yeah. to make, you know, public interest decisions regardless of um, level of participation totally. or level of investment. Yeah. You know, I'm stating the obvious, but I think it's really important. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's important to grapple with this stuff as we think about this new power world because we're absolutely headed in a direction of further decentralization, yeah. which like you, I'm really excited about. That for a bunch of reasons, but um, but I think the you know we want all of those people to read books yeah. about about government, yeah. and what, <laughs> why it was created, uh-huh. and why there might be some reasons to keep it around for a little bit longer, yep. etc. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah, I agree, and I think and that's a, that's governance, you know, and I think it's 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 kind of staying ours, but it's also kind of weird. Like we've had the noun government for yeah. a long time, period of time, but we don't really use governance that right. often. That's and true. What you're talking about is governance and how we make decisions. And and uh, how does that happen with both these blockchain-based protocols? How does it happen with these new platforms? And kind of yeah. pla- can can it be more of a platform co-op-y style way? Where yeah. the, you know, Uber actually where the drivers themselves have ownership and power. That's um, right. Yeah. So one thing that I guess well let's 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 actually transition to one final thing here because sure. we're, we're we're close to running out of time. Um, do you something that I just I couldn't end this episode without discussing is um, Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> <laughs> And what happens when something like uh, when some of these new power dynamics get co-opted? So could you kind of tell the story of Bodie McBoatface um, sure. and, and what it kind of shows? So, so basically there was a, uh, a British institution, a government institution called the National Environmental Research Council that had built a very expensive shipping vessel <laughs> that was going to go and do 300 million pounds, I think it was. They were going to go and explore, you know, explore the world uh, doing environmental research. So they thought, well, we put all this money in, we, we may as well make a bit of a, uh, you know, fanfare about it so they tried to engage the crowd <laughs> so they they announced this campaign called hashtag name our ship and the first sign that this might be going wrong was that they issued a press release oh, in which they told the crowd what they thought they should name the ship oh, no. they gave suggestions that were very august <laughs> yeah. like endeavor and shackleton yes. as adventurer <laughs> and of course when you do that um and you don't have cultivated any of these new power uh skills and communities you know the crowd hadn't you know um had other ideas 
Yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, the, 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 uh, the, what would have otherwise been a very obscure contest became a kind of global cultural phenomenon when someone proposed the name Boaty McBoatface <laughs> and people swamped this site to vote for, the, for, for that. And then other people, by the way, came up with other great names like I like big boats and I cannot lie. <laughs> and so anyway, this is, a, this is a really a kind of parable of our age in the sense that you then have this old power institution that, um, you know, everybody's gotten really excited. They've got the public engagement that they were craving. But their boss, the science minister in the UK, was like, this is outrageous. Mm-hmm. This is trivializing science. Yep. The internet is stupid. I think it was actually the, the, the word with the internet was trivializing science. The internet as a whole was blamed. And so, you know, they, um, they caved to that pressure. They ended up naming the boat Sir David Attenborough, mm-hmm. which is hard to argue against. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they named a, 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 a small submarine vessel that was part of the ship, Bodie McBoatface. But they basically sunk Bodie at sea, you yeah. know. They, and so, but, you know, it's a, it's a good story of, like, both how institutions um, that are steeped in the old power world use these new skills, but also about the missed opportunities, right? Because really, they, they could have created this really amazing phenomenon yeah. around this boat. Yeah. They actually have the guts to call it Bodie McBoatface. Um, and so I think one of the things that people focus on, particularly old power players, they focus on the risks Mm-hmm. more than the missed opportunities. So yeah. everybody's worried about the scandal that that, that happens and saying something, yep. you know, too too outrageous yep. or, 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 or whatever. But actually, the missed opportunity to create intensity and engagement in your crowd in the 21st century, that equation changes. Yep. And actually, in many ways, you're better off, you know, pissing a few people off <laughs> yeah, if totally. it means that you're inspiring and engaging um, people that could really show up for you. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's funny and I think that there's a, a version of that is like on social media these days you'll have companies who the social media accounts are run by new age millennial folks who are funny <laughs> right. and they're just like hating on people right? totally, it's like, totally. and it's like this is funny this is right. good this is great like, it is it is interesting job, and then you see the dissonance where there's some scandal mm-hmm. and or some problem and then you know there's some really carefully worded statement yeah. <laughs> that gets posted on Twitter yeah, yeah, yeah. and then what happens is the crowd's like this is not enough and they demand <laughs> yeah. a return to that kind of frankness and so you you watch this journey of of that happening uh which um you know which is an interesting evolving um evolving uh dynamic yeah that's fun um well with that we're pretty much out of time but jeremy thanks so much for coming on the show for my listeners by the way if you so i have read new power and it is a great book uh especially it's good for we didn't something that we didn't talk about much today is there's both kind of the macro themes from a non-blockchain perspective which is actually very powerful and, and really great um about how new power is changing the world and then also Jeremy outlines a bunch of kind of actionable things that you can do. So it's like we talked about some of them about how to make your memes actionable and how to make them accessible or whatever. Um, but so there's a bunch of like actual um, actionable items within it, which is great. Um, so I'd recommend it. Just Google new power, I guess. Um, and Jeremy, how do you, how can people find you on the internet on like Twitter? Uh, sure. On Twitter, you can find me at, at Jeremy Hymans, H-E-I-M-A-N-S. Oh, perfect. Um, well, with that, thank you so much, Jeremy. Um, and by the way, a final note to my listeners, if you want to support me in, a, I would argue, a new power way, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Landmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Okay, great. Everybody, goodbye. <laughs> Sweet. Awesome.